1: This is the John Oakley Show Podcast. All right, away we go with our panel and topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Come
0: like on, it's, show it's, us the pizza, John. You <laughs> know, show us the pizza. It's like Pavlovian. I see you start
1: to drool every time I mention that on a Wednesday afternoon. Dan Moulton is with us, consultant at Cresview Strategy. That's a public affairs agency, formerly an advisor in the McGinty and Wynn governments. Good to have you here, Dan.
2: My... Uh... <laughs> Thin crust Canadian pizza is on the way. Right it is? Okay. Well, That's I mean, my order
1: in case you're wondering. Well, I like it. Uh, thin crust. Is that somehow symbolic? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Or Canadian pizza is what I meant to say. Uh Kristen carmichael Greb, former councillor for Ward 16, Eglinton Lawrence. How's Kristen?
3: I'm well. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for coming in. And Peter Tavins, the MPP for Toronto Danforth, the NDP's energy and climate change critic. Mr. <laughs> Tavins, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, John. By how the are way, you? did all of you hear the emergency alert earlier today? I did. Yes. I did. I got it on my phone. Well, you do? Well, yeah. uh, everybody does, I guess, for the most yeah. part. And it, it'll be mandatory by next May if uh, any new devices will have to have the capacity to blare these things out. <laughs> I heard people actually complain that this is somehow an imposition. Anybody see it in that? Uh- I, I you know, didn't feel I like don't. it was an imposition.
2: No. I, I mean, it came up on my phone screen. I didn't have my noises turned on because I'm not a barbarian and it didn't make any noise. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, that, that was about it. Like, I, I don't understand how this could be an imposition on your daily life to have an emergency warning system. Dan,
1: we live in a culture of complaint. If there's anything that people could but potentially... But I think we
2: can be a vanguard against that here, John. Can't we fight back against that culture of complaint
1: I, I believe so. Every day, I you know, I fight the good fight, but uh, it <laughs> feels <laughs> like I'm shoveling sand against the tide. No, no, you're <laughs> going uphill, sir. You're oh, right, right, pushing I, that I, rock way right, right uphill. Right, right now I am. Uh, all right, but that being said, let me start with something that looks like, uh, I don't know if this is an uphill battle or not, but uh, Kristen, I'll start with you because you just <laughs> formerly having left council, yep. I don't know if it's merciful or otherwise but uh <laughs> there is talk of uh, budget changes council staff budgets according to a staff report may have to increase by uh at least double from 241,000 a year to 482,000 these are staff budgets uh the counselor councilor office budget could increase to between 50 to 69,000 from the current 34 so we're talking about doubling because the argument goes you know Doubling up on the yep. number of constituents, yada, yada, yada. Do you think this is justifiable?
3: I don't know that doubling is. In some areas, perhaps, where there is a much higher population of, of residents that need to be looked after. Um I, I had three staff members, got by fine with that, would hire someone, uh, a summer student in the summer, and still had room in my staffing budget. Um, so maybe one or two more people. If I had won the election, you know, one or two more people, maybe I would have brought on. But if you allocate the work properly um, so that you 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 get it done efficiently, then I don't think you need to double it.
1: Okay, but... Uh this will be voted on by council. <laughs>
3: so, well, It'll John, be doubled. What <laughs> what's misleading about the way you
2: set this whole thing up mm. is that the global budget, the total budget for offices across the council isn't going to change. I mean, the individual councillor office budgets are going to double because the council was halved in size. Mm-hmm. And so just because there's half the number of councillors around the table, a, a move that I broadly think is probably the right decision from a governance perspective, doesn't change the number of constituent complaints those those aren't doubling. Those are staying mm-hmm. the exact same. They're not having, uh, they're staying the exact same. And so you need, I think uh, the, the outgoing counselor makes a great point, um, you you know, you need to have the right resources to be able to respond to those concerns in your community and uh, to deal with the concerns of your constituents. And to say that you're going to have the exact same number of complaints, but half the staff. Come on.
1: Well, no, the the argument was for cutting uh, that this would be streamlined or efficient. Yeah, yeah well, that we was all, garbage. We, yeah, yeah, it was total junk. I mean, I, I told Doug Ford in the legislature, he couldn't keep
0: up when he was a councillor, according to what he wrote in his own book. And frankly, when he was saying in Los Angeles, they have, what, 15 counselors? Mm -hmm. He kept omitting the fact they had 19 staff each. And Kristen, if you had three with a summer student, you were operating far more efficiently than those counselors in L.A. The simple reality is there are huge volumes. I can't speak to your Mm -hmm. ward or what would have been the new riding, but having been a city councilor man we were just scrambling constantly because there were huge demands you double the size of the the wards you're going to double in most cases the amount of volume going through those counselors' offices. It was always bunk what Ford had to say. And
1: corresponding budgets, Kristen just said it isn't necessary uh, that you double. Uh, It may be an increased, I don't know what the percentage would be but do you automatically just see it by a factor of, you know, you double it up?
0: Well, again, the simple reality is in most places, if you're you're doubling the number of constituents you're dealing with, there's a very good chance you're going to double the volume of calls coming in. I, I can't speak to your ward or writing, it may have had a different population mix, but when i was on council most of the people i talked to had their hands full all the time uh, that's the simple reality and ignoring so there's that nothing math,
1: outrageous about this no math. well come no, on what was outrageous
0: it. was attacking toronto city council ford was ignoring the ignoring the will of toronto toronto gets should be able to set its own number of councillors they wanted fewer that's their business they wanted more that's their business but having the province jump in on that that was just destructive.
1: Okay, but now you've got the staff report. Uh, for example, general and travel budgets for council could rise up to $21.7 million from the current $13.2 million if council approves one of the options before it. Uh, is that necessary to increase the travel budget?
3: No, there uh, there is no reason to increase travel budget. Um, I mean, what ultimately... Needs to be done is a governance review of how uh, city council operates. You're not going to save any money, make council more efficient. All you have now is 25 people who are still going to talk the same amount of time, and unless you change the way that council operates, how how committees report to council, you're not going to have any efficiencies at all.
0: But in fact, that was that's never the center of it. You know, the the council meetings go on as long as they go on, but the big volume hmm. of work is outside your council meetings. It's the evenings and weekends you spend in your ward dealing with constituent issues or community issues. That's where the big volumes come from. Your staff don't work. Mine didn't. And, of course, I can't speak for yours. You you ran your office. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, again, most of my time was spent outside of council, outside of committee, dealing with constituent issues, and that's where most of my staff spent their time as well. Yeah.
1: What about committees that uh, would be reduced from six members on a committee to five? Sounds no fine. problem. It does. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. At the
2: outset, I, I agree with. I agree with Kristen. Like, I think there is a, a governance problem uh, at at City Hall. Uh, that's obviously what uh, the premier was trying to address. Did he do it in the right way or the right timelines? Eh, I don't think so. But he's helping to address the the governance problem. Council has been handed an opportunity. And I think they're going to seize on it. It looks certainly from the agendas of the early meetings, like they're going to spend a lot of time looking at the governance of of how decision-making is is, is done at that council Uh, with a lot less counselors around the table. You can improve that process. You can strengthen governance. You can make decision-making more efficient in this city. And I think that's a real opportunity for the new council.
1: All right. There you go. I mean, you know, everybody's talking efficiencies these days. As a matter of fact, this is one of those things that it's cropped up with the general motors, uh, retrenchment, I guess, is how they're positioning it. Uh, they want to be more agile, uh, more uh, resilient, responsive to uh, market demands, and they're pulling up stakes from uh, from Oshawa, as we know. Now, I'm kind of curious, Kristen, again, you come from a family where General Motors, you know, basically sustained three generations mm-hmm. and counting, right?
3: Yep, absolutely. Okay. Uh,
1: what do you make of, first of all, General Motors deciding to quit Oshawa, and it looks like, you know, Jerry Diaz is saying it, it's inevitable that they're uh gearing up to leave the mm-hmm. country and get out entirely do you think this uh there is a, a plausible plan to save them the unions now talking diaz earlier today saying he's trying to get the UAW on board they want to increase tariffs to cars coming out of mexico 40% tariffs and so on mm-hmm. is that a worthwhile gambit is there anything you Think the political class can do to save General Motors?
3: I don't think putting tariffs on cars coming from Mexico is going is going to, is going to uh, reopen the Oshawa plant. I think right now where it's at is there's nothing been allo- nothing has been allocated past 2019. Um, that could change. Um, I think the automotive industry has changed a lot in the last. 10 even 3 years um so we need to look at how we're building vehicles what types of vehicles we're building and and where we build them all right and so uh
1: if gm is planning it says zero emission vehicles this was uh mm-hmm. their now that's where signal. the world's going well all right if that's where the world's going does it behoove us to get involved and subsidize whatever plans they may have or to entice them to maybe Retrofit or uh, tweak the 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 plant in Oshawa so that we're you know sort of a a party to them reconfiguring.
0: Well, I think we should look at uh, as wide a range of options as we can. Uh, frankly, if we put money into them, we shouldn't do what we did the last time, which was not step in and have some control and leverage. I mean, Doug Ford has just, in this case, just given up, said, you know, it's over, it's done. Uh, We've got a year before this is all closed. He's got an opportunity, if he's got the guts, if he's got the will, to fight for those jobs. And that may mean the federal and provincial governments making it clear to GM that it will be an an unfriendly business environment in the future if they're not willing to actually come through and support the people in this country. How do we win if we start firing that shot across their bow? Well, they've, they've shot a, a shell across our bow. They've told, told thousands of people, you're out. We bailed them out right. in 2008, 2009. Right. Mm-hmm. If the federal government, the provincial government hadn't stepped in, they would be gone. Right. And they owe something to the people of this country, they owe something to the workers of this country to look at making things work.
2: Well, there were job protections included until 2016. We're obviously past the terms of that that agreement. Um, I would say that times are are, are different right now. This is obviously tragic and and life-changing for everyone that works at that facility, Uh, but times are a bit different in terms of what we need to expect of our governments to intervene here. In 2008, uh, should the government federal and provincial and the American governments not stepped in to uh, safeguard the industry, it it wouldn't have just been a GM plant closing in Oshawa. It would have been a cataclysmic impact on our economy and thousands and thousands of workers in every part of Ontario could have been affected. And it would have been a much different uh, impact on our daily lives. What we're talking about now is an economy that's growing, uh, an economy that's strong and resilient and can absorb uh, this change. Uh, and, and while it would be very hard for the families that were affected, uh, this is a, a change in our economy. I think, you know, the, the, Peter, where you're right is The economy is heading in a decarbonized direction. I'd much rather the government look at opportunities to incent Tesla to come open a factory here uh, than to incent GM to come build carbon-based vehicles.
0: But the other side of it, the other option, though, is saying to GM, your whole move is going to be into zero-emission vehicles. You should be doing that in Oshawa. You've got a plant that's set up. It's well, in great that's shape. my you question though.
1: Would you incent them with taxpayers' money? Well, I think, well, I I think you'd,
0: have, you'd have to look at it. You'd have to see what the cost benefit is. But I would say I'm open to looking at that, looking at the numbers, but also to making but it very clear. But you're disgruntled
1: that we gave them money the last time in 09 uh, and they didn't live up to the
0: covenant. No. What Dan is saying is they lived up to their covenant. I don't think we should have sold off the shares. We should have held on to them so that we would have a say at the table when decisions are made about investment. We need that investment here. And frankly, if they're they're going to build electric vehicles, they can build them here in Ontario just as well as anywhere else. In fact, they can build them better here.
1: All right, let me take a time out. When we come back, we'll ask about, uh, you know, the government uh, throwing around the largesse. And if you support uh, the latest... All right, back into it with our panel, Dan Molden, Kristen Carmichael Greg, Peter Tabbins. You know, since Tabbins, you've been so in favor of subsidizing General Motors, should they want to go with oh, you? Oh. Oh, no, no, you're a
0: skilled man, Mr. Oakley, but <laughs> slipping you. those words in, which I didn't say, you I, I'm impressive. I'm impressive. No, I said I was open to looking at a variety of things, looking at cost benefit, and I wouldn't give up on investing in General Motors, but frankly, I'd want to see what we get out of it. And I'm. I still think they owe this country a lot given the support they got
1: when they were in deep trouble. Yeah, boy, I don't know it works that way that, uh, you know, somebody <laughs> does it as an article of faith or uh, uh a, You know, it may not
0: be an article of faith, but when you help someone who's in deep trouble and they kick you later, you know, it's time to
1: for a little... Well, they're still operating them. in Saint Catharines and Ingersoll, so yes, uh, yeah, man, exactly. Yeah, man, and and I, I think
0: Jerry Dias is right that if we don't act on this one, there's a potential they'll pull out on the rest. Yeah, I think
2: they're being a bit alarmist. Uh, I would say that uh, one thing that we can point to in terms of moves that are. Positive for the auto industry, though, is the the new NAFTA agreement uh, and the requirements there for certain labor standards uh, across North America. And I think that was a really interesting, creative provision uh, that required a certain minimum wage being paid to auto workers uh, for the construction of vehicles. And I think that helps protect... Uh, workers in Ontario and parts of the United States that earn uh, a decent, uh, respectable wage uh, to get to, pay, to build cars. Well, yeah,
1: and Jerry Diaz was all bullish on that, uh, the $16 minimum uh, of 75% of the content. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. If we're going to talk about subsidies, uh, Maple Leaf Foods just got $34.5 million from the Ontario government, 62.5 in total feds in the province. Uh, this is for a $660 million Kind of uh, a new processing plant in London, Ontario, shuttering one in Brampton and here in Toronto, as well as another one uh, outside of the city, uh, because this is the uh, advanced, I guess, uh, way of processing chicken. But this is a, a, a private uh, family owned and controlled company. Does that justify $34.5 million of provincial money into it? Doug Ford was suggesting that this is something uh, that's a boon to the province. It maybe we find ourselves in a situation predicament where jobs need to be guaranteed against the backdrop of what's just seen uh, the tumult in general motors. People might be happy for this kind of infusion of capital. Am I wrong?
2: No, I think he's, uh, he's right. Uh, I would say that it's humorous though. He spent an entire campaign in the spring, uh, riling on about how bad corporate welfare was, how bad decision making like that was. Uh, and here we are for short four months later and he's you know largely implementing the policies of the, the Kathleen Wynne government, which were focused on uh, providing incentives to get businesses to set up shop here in Ontario or grow here in Ontario, which is what our competitors across North America are doing, particularly jurisdictions that are similar to us. that are trying to incent uh, food processing or manufacturing to their jurisdiction they're using incentives like this, and so you know, I think it's we have to do it
1: to compete. All right. Well, Kristen, is he being pragmatic, or is he betraying the conservative dogma here?
3: I <laughs> I have a hard time giving you know giving giving companies like this corporate welfare, but um, if it is for jobs and and making sure that that we as a province are are uh, able to incent people to come here, then um, I think it's something that that we have to do, unfortunately, um, to make sure that we are competitive, not just uh, in Canada, but worldwide.
1: Towns, yeah. you must be in
0: favor. I'd want to see the terms of the agreement. Mm. I think it's a good a good thing that jobs are going to London. London's gone through a really tough period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but frankly, if we paid companies to relocate out of Brampton and Toronto and a bunch of people lose jobs here and in Brampton just to move the jobs to London, I'd really want to see what the cost and the benefit is on all of this. All right. In the end, we may have to put some in, but uh, it's also interesting to just see Ford abandon
1: what we're uh, what would one say, bedrock principles during the election? Hey, listen, I'll come back with another cost benefit analysis to run by you here in a moment. Uh, we'll see how we respond with our panel. Dan Moulton, Peter Tabins, Kristen Carmichael Greb. Well, we're living in extreme times here in Toronto, too. It seems there's a housing crisis. Uh, and insofar as uh, that's concerned, I've got this is the cost benefit analysis component. Uh, Canada took in a record 413,000 people from abroad in the year through July 1. 100,000 of those immigrants have landed in Toronto in the past year and yet we haven't increased substantially infrastructure certainly not uh, and housing and we know that this puts pressure and stress we've seen 47% of the avails in our uh, shelter system are taken up by refugee claimants or asylum seekers and so on and so forth Uh, but my question here, and I'll ask you, Tavins, because, you know, you're the guy into the cost-benefit analysis. If we're doing this and we're creating an issue that there's uh, an undersupplier, maybe we can't afford to take in as many people as we're taking in. Uh, you raise a good
0: question because it's a big issue, John. Uh, we've actually benefited, I think, in the GTA, the GTHA, by the growth in our population. I think that's part of the reason that the How the have economy, we benefited, just specifically? It, it's… it's built up the market and it's built up the availability of skills I, I think a lot of the prosperity in this region is because we have been growing but you raise a good point there needs to be more investment in infrastructure and there needs to be more investment in housing uh, and the other thing we need is rent control so that people aren't driven out of the apartments they're in now that's becoming a big issue in my writing where landlords see the opportunity to drive tenants out and reset the rent 500
1: bucks a month more per month. Well, it's interesting that you say that because uh, in this article in Bloomberg, uh, they quote the CEO of Rio Can Reit, Ed Sunshine, who's uh, saying they're interested in getting into the market of uh, purpose-built apartments and so yeah. on, but government incentives need to be higher. In other words, uh, help us out here, and that includes lifting regulation and red tape like rent control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I disagree with him. He's the builder. I know know you're shocked. I know you're shocked. Well, no, but he's the guy who's got uh, the capital at stake here. He's the one who's going to build or develop. But the reality is
0: that the Tories put in place regulations so that new buildings wouldn't have rent control on them under Mike Harris. We went through 20 years with no rent controls on new buildings and virtually no new rent control buildings were built. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, virtually no new apartment buildings were built. So... That's just okay. That's just junk. But here's—I
2: yeah. I think it's a bit laughable to say that removing rent controls in this province is what's going to make housing more affordable for people. That's well, an outrageous statement.
1: My, my original question though was whether or not we ought to turn off the taps of you know 413,000, a quarter of whom settle in Toronto. That's an unsustainable number, isn't it?
2: No, I, I think that Canada's economic success and this region's economic success is directly tied to uh, our rate of immigration. Uh, there, there's no question about that. What I think needs to be fixed is zoning rules across the region. Uh, we do not do enough uh, to encourage intensification uh, uh, in our, across our region. We need density. We need people living in uh, more dense spaces. We incent builders uh, to develop sprawling uh, single occupancy family homes uh, across the region. Uh, I live in a condo downtown uh, and, and I'm not saying that that tall of a condo building should be in every part of this region, uh, but I also don't think that it's always been there. You know, It used to be single occupancy family homes in my neighborhood and now thousands more people live in the same same geography
1: all right let me ask Kristen because you were uh, representing up until recently Ward 16 Eglinton Lawrence and that's you know one of those uh, major thoroughfares both Mm -hmm. are actually where development could take place on subway hubs and uh, transit hubs and things so do you think that's the solution or uh, maybe lowering the number of folks who come in and put stresses on everything from social services to uh, housing
3: I I think uh, we have a problem in this city where or in this country, where you know people are coming in, and it's uh, they're going to the big cities, and they're coming to Toronto, and we cannot—we're at capacity in Toronto to take in uh, uh, people. We have a big problem with the refugees going into the shelters, and there's nowhere for those people to go. Um, going back to the rent control issue. Kathleen Wynn brought in a whole bunch of controls when when she was in, and uh, we lost 7,000 purpose-built rental units um, approximately after that announcement was made. We have ma- been building r- purpose-built rental in the city. In my area, we have a few purpose-built rentals that were built during my time, and, um, and developers do want to build. Um, but it's making sure that the incentives are there to make them build. It is... Exceedingly more expensive to build in this city, um, not just from a development charge or, or infrastructure charge uh, standpoint, but from a, uh, you know, the trades. They're charging more. They're, mm-hmm. Those costs are going up exponentially. So developers are saying, we need more to be able to build what we need in the city. And it, it's not a you know, here's a magic one. One thing will fix everything. And there's a bunch of different areas that we need to look at uh, to fix this problem. Well, I think I, it's I, a
2: tough time to be a developer in this region, though. I, like, I, I don't think that developers are hurting. And I think if you look across the region, I'd love to see uh, a single developer that can put up their hand and say, I made less money uh, this Dan, year than I part did part of last the
1: problem, year. and I talked to a developer about this yesterday, uh, when you've got high development fees and all the rest, I mean, to bring the pipe in, you know, and all the facilities and so on and so no, they've got to pass those on, or they will ultimately. You might say, yeah, they're making uh, money hand over fist, but they are passing those costs on to the purchaser, and that's where the affordability crisis is exacerbated. Am I well, wrong,
0: Tavins? Well, I'm not sure that you're right, John. I think part of the problem here, and that's, we discussed it in the break, was uh, one of the things that drove up prices in Vancouver was money laundering, was uh, people using re- the real estate market to clean up their dollars so they couldn't be traced to criminal activity. That's something that... Vancouver actually started some work on, needs to do more on, and we need to look at here in this city. Part of the problem I've seen uh, with new developers in suburban areas is they buy land up really cheap, uh, land that, frankly, probably is too far away from services to be economically developable. Um, They sell the land at a much higher cost to the ultimate homeowners, and cities get stuck with the cost of servicing. So to say that it's all just the cost of servicing is not a fair analysis frankly i think the the bigger problem is dan's right we need to have higher density overall um and we need to stop sprawl because that's killing us in terms of cost of infrastructure it's very very difficult to service, and we need to be looking at problems like money laundering and seeing how
1: they actually drive up costs well there is a i think a movement of foot to uh implement some kind of transparency act so that you know who's actually purchased the property because right now it's done anonymously in a lot of cases right you know shell yeah. companies or sheltered yeah. Uh, yeah. corporations offshore kind of entities and so on and so forth uh... we're run out of time i wish we had more of it because i've only got sixteen seventeen more issues or topics <laughs> worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. <laughs> uh, there you go. So I appreciate uh, you all. tempting,
0: going. but never uh, delivering. Come really. on. The tease
1: continues next Wednesday. Thank you all. Dan Moulton, Peter Tabbins, Kristen Carmichael Greb. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Thank John. You. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.